0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 58 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 58, we are going to be talking about the virus spreading all over the place, COVID-19 or 2019 in Cove. In C O V or any other sort of names that you want to discuss regarding it we're going to talk about its impact in terms of specifically how it's impacting bible quizzing we'll talk a little bit about the impacts to what's going on in the pacific northwest district uh, in terms of the remainder meets to our uh, season uh, this this year's uh, season and what's going on there We're going to talk a little bit about Great West, and we'll talk a little bit about district championships as far as we are able to ascertain, and a little bit about internationals as far as what we know. Uh, in relation to what's going on uh, with the virus, um, <clears throat> in trying to respond to it or or sort of the impact of it, and trying to do our part to try to keep the impact as minimal as possible, we've been doing some uh, discussions and studies and tests around the idea of virtual quizzing. So Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons and good things and bad things about uh, virtual quizzing, and of course. We will continue our material overview. We will be talking about 2 Peter chapter 2 uh, this, uh, this, in this particular episode, and we will also field a listener question. And if we have time, we might be able to get into a great discussion, which uh, I am jokingly calling the Great Timer Synod of 2020, uh, which is a discussion between Scott and I around the phys- philosophical nature of what a Quizmaster can and should do if the timer does not start on time. Now, with all of that said, let's kind of dive into it. So let's start with the first thing on the agenda, which is very sad. Lots of very sad things. It's a great way to start a show is with everything that's very sad. So uh, as many of you know, probably all of you know, uh, the COVID-19 virus uh, and really sort of the... Doing our social duty to try to limit its spread as long as possible. Basically, the the whole you know theme of of flattening the curve out in terms of trying to do everything that we can to reduce the number of folks at any one time who need medical care, uh, and 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 that sort of impact on billable quizzing has um, has been non-trivial. Uh, let's let's call it. Uh, in fact, in my entire history and experience of working in Bible quizzing. I have never seen a season. I have never experienced a season like what this season is shaping uh, up to be. Um, Scott, I've been talking a little bit. Do you want to kind of jump in here and, um, kind of express your thoughts and from your perspective here?
1: Yeah. I don't know how many thoughts I really have. It's just weird to have like every normal event in life canceled. It's just, it's surreal.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely surreal. Um, you know, so Scott lives out in the Midwest um, I don't think there's been has there many has there been any sort of major outbreaks in your area or or kind of in that sort of in your state?
1: Michigan has seen an uptick, and I believe it is in the top fifteen u s states now, but near the bottom of that grouping
0: hmm. okay, and of course, those numbers change rapidly. The United States is not doing a particularly good job even to this date uh, March sixteenth not doing a particularly great job of testing uh, terribly well. And so a lot of the numbers that we have in terms of total caseloads are probably deflated from reality, uh, to some degree. So, I mean, that's good in terms of calculating a CFR, but not so good in terms of really getting a handle on the spread and what's going on there. Well, there are some good news, some silver, silver linings about this thing and some, some bad news sorts of things. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the virus itself in, in, in the short term and kind of why the, the properties of the virus and how it interacts with the population, why those sorts of things are causing... Uh, well, not just Bible quizzing, but but really everybody to act in a particular way and make policies in a particular way. And then those policies, of course, uh, are being implemented in Bible quizzing. And so we want to try to explain and understand why those things are happening. So the virus itself, while it sounds very scary, and there are certain things to be concerned about, and I don't want to downplay the concern because it's very legitimate, but the virus itself is actually not that Well, I was going to say it's not that dangerous. That's not really a very fair way of saying it. For the vast majority of people, uh, 80% of folks uh, somewhere in that ballpark, um, possibly uh, more than that, uh, possibly as much as 88% of folks will have a mild reaction uh, to the virus if they get exposed, if they become sick, they will have a mild uh, reaction to it perhaps as many as 20% of the people who actually get sick with the virus may not even know that they're sick. Their, their symptoms may be so mild that they might not actually be asymptomatic, but they will be so mild that they don't even notice. They'll just be kind of like, oh, I feel really tired today or something like that. They cough a little bit and that's the end of it. And then, and they get over it fairly quickly. That's the good news. The bad news is that a so far, and these these are estimates, are you know non scientific. They're just well pseudo They're pulled from various different you know scientific pursuits in the short term. So don't rely too terribly on these numbers. But roughly twelve percent of folks who are contracting uh, the virus, who who basically get sick with the virus, require some kind of care. Right now, this can be anything from generally severe. Uh, all the way into critical. So severe cases just means you get sick, but you get so sick that you you actually have to go see a doctor about it, right? It's not something that you can just treat at home, but you have to go see a doctor and they might, you know, um, diagnose you. They might um, try to give you some sort of medication. There really isn't Well, this isn't exactly true anymore. Up until very recently, there really wasn't any sort of treatment that we had available for COVID-19. Even to this day, we don't really know if the treatments are super effective, but there are a couple of ideas of some treatments. And being that I don't have my notes in front of me and I am not an MD, I'm not going to really go into what those things are. But there is some hope that there are some possible things that if you do end up being one of those 12% who do need to see a doctor... Uh, there are some treatments uh, that are starting to come, uh, come up that might actually have some positive uh, you know, results in, ter- in terms of treatment, right? But generally speaking, uh, it, folks who get severely uh, ill, this is probably somewhere around, sorry, the critically ill, not severely ill. Folks who get critically ill, this is probably around somewhere around 5%, give or take. Uh, most of the time, these, these, these folks who end up in this unfortunate 5% are actually, their conditions are treatable, right? It's not like, you know, the plague or some sort of, you know, very, very scary thing. It is something to be taken seriously, right? You definitely want to go, you know, talk to your doctor. You definitely want to get tested. You want to, you know, receive some treatment, but the treatment is usually sort of oxygen supplementation. And there might be some, uh, some light drugs that can be taken to manage symptoms and so forth. And I'm not going to go too far into the medical side of things, because like I said, I'm not an MD, but the big thing about this and, and the reason we care about, uh, trying to slow the spread of the virus so much is not so much because those 5% are, you know, going to be at death's door or anything like that uh, right away, but rather that there is a tremendous change in the CFR, which is the, what is it, clinical something rate, uh, clinical fatality rate, case fatality rate. That's what it is. Sorry, case uh, fatality, basically the morbidity of it, right? There is a tremendous alteration in that morbidity rate if you can get access, if people can get access to uh, medical care if they need it, right? Most people won't need medical care, but for those who do, if they can get access to medical care, they have a very good chance of a very positive outcome, right? So a couple of examples here, if you compare South Korea, that's doing a really good job of testing and a really good job of making sure people get uh, care if they need it, their CFR is 0.7, roughly 0.7%. Compare that. Compare that to Italy, their CFR right now is somewhere around 6.0. Oh, this is actually data from yesterday, so it's probably a bit different. Data from this stuff is changing on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis. But the last I checked, their CFR was effectively somewhere around 6.6%. So that's a, I mean, that is a huge huge difference, right? That's almost an order of magnitude difference uh, between uh, South Korea and and Italy. And that's really almost entirely because of early testing, isolation, and making sure people can get access to care. And so in terms of what we're doing as a society, we want to make sure people, as many people as possible, can get access to care. And so... And the other thing to keep in mind, and I know I'm, I'm speaking mostly, most of our audience tends to be quizzers, you know, big shocker based on the content of the show. Quizzers tend to be junior high and high school youth, right? Youth tend to have a very good, uh, not reaction, but a resistance to this this virus. Youth tend to have an extraordinarily good uh, chance against not being in that 12% that needs uh, care, right? So the reason we're so careful about this stuff is not so much because of the youth, but we're wanting to make sure that the youth and everybody aren't, uh, don't unintentionally become carriers and get other people sick, right? And we're trying to slow that process as much as possible because what'll end up happening is while over time, maybe the same number of people get sick, if we can spread out that number of people getting sick, instead of it all happening within two months, it actually happens over, say, eight months or 12 months, then it means that the healthcare care system uh, in whatever country you happen to be in, Canada, the United States, wherever it happens to be, if the, the impact to the healthcare system is lower and hopefully becomes manageable, because then we can make sure that people who need access to care can get access to care. And that's really sort of the big thing that's going on there. So what that means with Bible quizzing, uh, we'll start with in the PNW and then just kind of start talking a little bit more broadly. What's going on in PNW is uh, we, we were having, uh, well, the plan was uh, a little less than two weeks from now, it would have been the uh, 27th and the 28th, we would have had our fifth district meet in the Pacific Northwest. It would have been in Dallas, Oregon. And, uh, you know, of course, everybody was very much looking forward to it. Dallas is a a wonderful church. It's a wonderful uh, place in the country, a beautiful landscape and a wonderful uh, opportunity to fellowship and get together. Uh, Dallas was also going to do our uh, once a year P&W ice cream social. Uh, which was a, sort of another kind of a longstanding tradition that we serve ice cream typically at district championships. But this year, because D- uh, uh, Champs is up at a camp in the Cascades, we were going to do that at meet five. Unfortunately, we had to make the decision. Gosh, it's all blurred in my head. When did we do that? It would have been sometime. It was early. like two days ago. Uh, we decided. No, we decided to cancel. Was it really only two days ago? I thought it was further back than that. Uh, it seemed very recently. I can verify pretty quickly here but yeah i i want to say it was like maybe it was late last week thursday friday wednesday march thirteenth, march thirteenth. so that would have been friday of, of last week and of course you know the board uh the pna uh sorry the pnw board uh, Bible Quizzing Board of Directors has been in nearly daily con- uh, contact, sometimes hourly contact with each other, discussing and debating and trying to discern what is the wise course of action because nobody, nobody wants to cancel meets, but we end up having to, you know, make these difficult decisions for, in, for the best interests of the, of both the program and the quizzers. But really in this case, I think it was more for the best interests of our communities uh, to do our part, to try to, uh, slow down the spread as much as possible. So that's very unfortunate. Um, The sort of the, I don't know if it's not, it's not really a silver lining, but the, uh, a a potential good outcome of it is we are uh, doing some thinking and testing and more thinking about what virtual quizzing might look like in terms of trying to hold a quiz meet or a quiz meet like thing uh, virtually, uh, just video conferencing. So people can stay in their homes, Uh, and we can still fellowship together, we can still quiz together, uh, and we're trying to work out some of those details. Well, so that happened on Friday, and of course, in canceling the Dallas meet, only one weekend later was uh, Great West, and so of course, over the weekend, there was a fury of uh, emails and activity around what's going to happen with Great West, and Sunday? No, sorry, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't actually Sunday. It was uh, Monday morning. This Monday morning at around uh, six thirty or something in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning, uh, Glenn, who is the uh, district coordinator for Western Canada uh, and who is the chief person in charge of managing and hosting uh, Great West, uh, emailed uh, uh, Darcy and I, uh, the two other. Uh, district coordinators involved in Great West and announced that sadly, regrettably, uh, he was going to have to cancel uh, Great West. And honestly, he made the right call. And I don't think there's really, there's really just no other way. There's just no realistic viable way that we could have uh, conducted Great West, uh, even if we wanted to. Canada at this point is uh, closing its borders, as is the United States. Canada's closing its borders, to i think just about everyone everywhere except for canadians who are trying to return home and for americans i think we are the two groups that are exempted that said i believe and, I, and and again i'm i'm not an expert on this i'm just reciting what i'm remembering here but my understanding is that if you cross the border into canada and you are uh coming into canada from an out uh uh an outbreak zone which part of the Pacific Northwest is an outbreak zone. Uh, The uh, greater Seattle area, Seattle-Tacoma area is an outbreak zone. So if you're entering Canada from an outbreak zone, uh, I believe they are putting you into a mandatory uh, 14-day quarantine. So effectively, uh, PNW would cross the border, go into quarantine for 14 days, um, go to Tim Hortons and have some great coffee and donuts and then turn around and come back home. So that's not, that's not really viable. So old. And then Glenn even uh, had thought through, well, what if we could do great West with just the two districts instead of three? And he ultimately just decided even that was just not viable and, and was not safe given what the Canadian health authorities are, are recommending at this point. So unfortunately we are now, um, district meet number five in pnw and we are also out great west and um this fills me with great sadness because i mean great west is um i know it's i love every quiz meet that we go to and i love district meets and i love scrambled meat but there's something really special about great west um it is um the road trip is very long and it's very exhausting but it's very wonderful as well um and so to lose Great West this year is, is just a pretty big blow on um, the other thing about um, that Glenn announced uh, in his email this morning is that Western Canada is effectively canceling the remainder of their quiz season. Uh, at this point, we're all sort of looking at internationals, but nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen with internationals. Uh, the CQLT uh, is monitoring the situation. They're doing their due diligence. I'm sure. Uh, but we just don't know. Uh, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to cancel internationals, but I don't know. It's it's in July. So, I mean, it's a fair number of months away, uh, but it's so far into the future in terms of what's going on with this thing that it's very difficult to foresee what's going to happen. It's just too far in the future. I mean, from... You know, the middle of March into July in most quiz seasons, we would say, well, that time is going to go really fast and it'll be on here. You know, we'll be heading off to internationals before you know it kind of stuff, prepare now and all this kind of thing. But this this sort of stuff is going on from a, you know, day-to-day, hour-by-hour sort of thing. Um, and so you know, early July just seems like a different universe uh, from where we are right now. So we'll, we'll just sort of have to see about that. And then of course, that takes us back just a little bit to uh, district championships. So district championships, the plan uh, is that it's in April, and I don't have the dates directly in front of me. I want to say it's in the middle of April. Um, uh, The plan is that that is going to be at the double K Christian camp and retreat center. It's in uh, Easton, Washington. So it's nestled right in the middle of the Cascade uh, Mountains, it's sort of like the Pacific Northwest version of Crow's Nest Camp, where Great West is is held. Um, uh, the The camp facilities at Double K are a bit larger. The campus is certainly uh, quite a bit larger. Uh, I think there are, are more amenities, but but generally speaking, it's it's pretty similar. So um, you know, it was looks like that would be a, a really, really fun opportunity for both, uh, quizzers and parents and spectators and coaches and officials and so forth to have a really great time up there. Currently district championships is on, it's still on the calendar. Um, I, at this, at this point, if I, if I was required to hazard a guess, which I'm going to require myself of right now, I would say there's probably about an 80% chance it gets canceled, but I'm really, really holding on to that 20%. And hoping a lot. So, yeah, that's a lot of news. And I've talked for a really long time. I don't know, Scott, do you have any sort of thoughts or, or um, any kind of feelings you want to share?
1: Um, I just think it's, it's tough to amend anything because of how kind of stepping stone every single meat of the quizier is. And cutting out, in, a, in essence, a third right from the middle, even if there is an end, is quite a big change.
0: Yeah. It's a huge change. Um, so a lot of this stuff, a lot of the sort of the normal procedures kind of go out of the window. Um, if we find ourselves in a situation, I, I'm, I'm again, really holding on to that 20%. If we find ourselves in a situation where uh, that 20% becomes reality, and we really can continue with distri- district championships, uh, expect that the eligibility for district championships will change wildly. Um, probably so wildly as to include anybody who wants to come. I know that kind of changes the nature of district championships. We usually use that as a motivational kind of thing to kind of earn your way in. But I mean, given everything that's been been going on this year, uh, I think there's a, the greater good is served by uh, encouraging anybody who wants to participate in, in championships to be able to do so. Um, and then, of course, with internationals, we, we really just don't know. Uh, it's There's just too much ambiguity right now to really decide if it happens, how are we going to handle it, and in what fashion we're going to handle it. I'm sure over the next, you know, probably two weeks or so, maybe three weeks, we will sort some of these details out. Um, but for right now, it's just a big nebulous gray area. So, all right. So on to some good... Things, Or at least some very interesting things, more interesting than the bad news. So the good news is, uh, let's see, what was it? A couple of days ago, Saturday, uh, we conducted a virtual quizzing test workshop uh, a series of tests we had a lot of really awesome volunteers from all over we had a lot of volunteers from the P- uh, pacific northwest and that was great it was great to see all of you we also had some folks from cmd we had some folks from west Can. we had at least one or two people from from metro district uh, who joined us for some of these testing or for, for some of this testing and uh, that was fantastic thank you all for if you were involved in that in any capacity Even if it was just attempting to get connected and then you weren't able to get your device to connect to the meeting at all, that still actually helped uh, because it helps us understand what devices work, what doesn't, uh, what network connections work, what doesn't. So even if you were unable to join and you were trying to join, that data actually helps. Um, So thank you to everybody that was involved there. Uh, so we tested out a couple of different ideas in terms of like how would jumping work and how do how does you know bleed take place and we ran through a few different a, a couple of mock uh, quizzes uh, sort well shortened mock quizzes a lot of different test questions uh, some jump tests and so forth and um, so Scott from your perspective what were some of the um, like the pros the cons the concerns the issues the sort of the. What was your sort of overall feedback and maybe some specific details of things that you learned in terms of participating in the virtual quizzing uh, test? I was
1: hopeful, but I was definitely expecting it to be um, a failure as far as will it be viable. Um, I just imagined that differences in network connectivity quality and device quality, um, so hardware device quality and all that would just caused too many differences that would be unfair to have everyone compete together. And it was actually way better than I thought. For the most part, everyone who was connected could jump via sending a message quite quickly, and it came through quite quickly. And I was, I was surprised but happy that that was the case. I think the, the more that we dug into it, we found that it still was not as instantaneous as in-person. And even a slow amount of delay, even if consistent for everyone, just it required quizzers to jump so much earlier than they would normally jump and still get the same amount of information from the quiz master that they were effectively jumping before the question was started a lot of the time to get two syllables just because of the various delays, and which which probably is not... A viable solution, um, even with because even with incredible like maybe even hardwired speeds, I think there would still be some amount of delay greater than in person, and that does matter a lot in quizzing.
0: yeah. I approached the virtual quizzing tests from a fairly optimistic perspective. i was um, I was sort of holding on to the hope uh, that that twenty percent hope that that maybe we could make something work. Uh, I honestly had no idea what was going to happen. Um, and, uh, but I was just kind of holding out some level of hope. So similar to Scott, I was very surprised. Um, I mean, I was, I was, I was hopeful, but I was really surprised that the jump ordering seemed to be fairly accurate. I mean, that was kind of the surprising thing. What we did was we randomly assigned people a number, Uh, between like 1 and 15, and I just started reading numbers really quickly. Uh, And we did this over and over and over again uh, to, you know, just is it a fluke and and how is this working kind of stuff. But I would say something, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and just keep going. And when each person heard their number without anticipating as best they could, they would hit uh, enter, which would flag a message that they were jumping. Uh, And by and large, the numbers actually showed up in order almost all the time, like, like maybe once or twice, there were one or two numbers that were inverted, but it was awfully close. And I was in some of those tests, I was actually reading those numbers fairly quickly. And so that point that, that to me was surprising and very positive. I I was not expecting it to be that good in terms of ordering the, the thing that really was both frustrating, but probably not terribly surprising was that the lag was probably about half a second between me saying something and a quizzer hearing it. And then there was another, maybe let's call it a half second between the quizzer responding to the thing and it coming back to me. And then of course, you know, there's, there's the brain compute time, right? So I would say something it would take half a second to get to the quizzer. They would think about it for half a second uh, or a quarter of a second, and they would hit jump and then there would be at least a half second before it got to me and then if i'm watching really really closely for for the jumps uh me stopping just as that jump is there there's another half second added on to that where something that i'm saying is actually getting transmitted back out to the quizzers who are listening so you know, pretty consistently, we were seeing somewhere. What was it? Between about a a second to two sec. No, sorry, uh, one to two syllables of of uh, of bleed almost consistently all the time. Uh, Scott, was that your recollection? Yeah, it was roughly one to two. But I'd say the average del- um, bleed was greater
1: than a syllable and a half. Yeah. Even if it was just barely above that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was definitely. And I think I think in terms of like where we were able to cut it down to maybe a second was uh, in times where we were probably anticipating a whole lot which is probably not such a great thing but but yeah like in terms of you know reference questions like there was never a time e- even though i was absolutely totally expecting to you know get cut off um, there was never a time I couldn't say the complete reference before jumping was taking place, but people were, were telling me like, yeah, I jumped before you got to the verse number and I got the entire verse number in there. So that was, that was really unfortunate. Um, so that combined with the fact that quizzers, we, we, we really couldn't figure out a reasonable way for quizzers to... Um, Uh, conduct timeout sessions, we could not figure out a reasonable way for quizzers to communicate with each other uh, in small, quick, subtle ways between questions. Because I mean, you know, certainly you can actually communicate uh, as as a team very quickly, uh, but you can communicate between questions when there's not a timeout, provided you're doing so prior to the calling of a question. And uh, unfortunately, that just sort of, that goes away. Uh, You know, all the subtle sort of aspects of of the sport of quizzing, I think. I mean, the memorization obviously is still there, right? But, you know, as Scott has mentioned before, we don't want to turn quizzing into a memorization-only competition, right? I mean, it's always about memorization is obviously the bedrock of what we do, but quizzing is more than that. It, there's a, There's the sport of quizzing, I would say, is in all of these you know, the physical nature of the jumping, the, the intellectual, uh, fellowship camaraderie thing going on between the teams and inside the teams. And really all of that just went away. Um, so a lot of these quizzers were actually all these, the quizzers, uh, or the testing, uh, quizzers here were basically jumping. Well, blind, I guess it may, might be a way to say it, but it's really, they're sort of jumping into a void. Um, for a couple of reasons, they they're lacking the context around everything that's going on that they normally get in in a quiz, uh, in terms of their team in terms of the environment, but they're also having they're they're essentially being forced to pre jump and and hope for the best. Um, And that just unfortunately, made it too difficult to be able to do anything.
1: Yeah, It shows how much I mean, we all know how much information is conveyed through body language and context unrelated to the words that are being spoken and even mouth shape and tone of how they're spoken, right? And just as quizzers, because timing matters so much, you're very clued into actions that the quiz master is taking that help prepare you for the fact that the question is coming even before they say the words, question number nine, question, and like all of that's gone. Um, and it sounds really subtle until you don't have it, and then, um, like, you just don't have all that context, which then makes everything else harder. Like, it's harder to read lips or hear, unrelated to the technical aspect of it. Without that context, it makes it makes it so much harder.
0: Yeah. Did you notice it was harder to quiz master? Um, in some senses, because I had to arrange things
1: on a small computer screen. And I had to be aware of where my um, head and mouth was on my own camera. Whereas, if you're at a Quiz Meet, um, you don't have to arrange things on a computer screen, and you just you're sitting wherever you're sitting. Right. Um, and so there was a little bit more um, when it when it came down to it. It was I mean it was rough. I think it was pretty much the same, but th- those sorts of logistical setup things were different
0: for me it was it was really rough i think with more practice i think i could have gotten better at it but there's sort of like we were talking about all those subtle things that quizzers are going to be lacking in virtual quizzing that are are seem small but become tremendous there were the, those same sort of things were happening for me as a quizmaster so i didn't realize until doing virtual quizzing how much i actually rely on my peripheral vision to get a sense of the body language of the quizzers on the platform in a sense of saying like i would say question number 1 is a you know situation well it's not a situation question question number 1 is a multiple answer question let's say in saying that preamble i'm looking down at the at my the lights really quickly i'm looking at the card or the the computer screen with cbqz but my peripheral vision is sort of like i've got the quizzers kind of above that and they're they're sort of pseudo Con- slightly consciously, slightly subconsciously in my brain. Right. And they all sort of stop fidgeting at once. And a lot of them will kind of lean forward. Right. As I'm start starting that preamble and I can tell, I, I, and it's probably, I, I never really quite realized this until we were doing it. If there's ever a problem, like somebody's there, they're not quite set up properly, the, their pads shifted a little bit, they're having to move on their seat or something. Like I realized what I do is I just repeat the preamble almost subconsciously until I get that sort of spidey sense that, okay, everybody is, is ready now, you know, kind of thing. And then I start the question, uh, in the virtual quizzing universe, there's zero of that, right? Like, like, I mean, we had, we were using zoom, so I got to see, I don't know, six or seven, Uh, like little miniature faces up at the top, but like, there's no movement, there's no body language, like, like, I'm not getting any of that read coming through. And so for me, it felt weird, like I consciously knew there were, you know, what, 15 or 20 people on the call or something like that. But like, it felt like there, there was like one or two people, like it just felt so different and so like i don't know with time i think i could have worked that out but it was definitely a a factor for me
1: as an aside when i started quiz mastering there would always be lights that would you know quizzers would test their lights as you're kind of um, leading up to the question being started and then there were inevitably fouls when lights were still on and i remember the first time that i quiz mastered at great west there was way more light activity leading up to the question, right? So pretty much every quizzer was testing their light. But then, right when I said question number four, question, every single light went off, and I just—it really showed um, that quizzers at that level are way more precise, and everybody knows where the exact end of your light is because at a meet like that, everyone is jumping at a timing, is not jumping on recognition. So there's no there's no advantage for you to have a very quick jump, like um, starting to move. So from the time you start to move to the time you trigger a light, that doesn't really m- matter. It just matters when you trigger your light. And every quizzer knew exactly what movement, what physical movement would trigger their light. And that was something that w- was always very hit or miss at the dist- district level. It's another thing that we'll miss about Great West.
0: <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, very much so. I mean, and that's where there was a – there's a Facebook channel or group or account or something called uh, Bible Quizzing Memes. Uh, it's very funny. I, I laugh tremendously. It, it brightens my day in these dark days that we are facing. Uh, but somebody was uh, posting on there something about making a joke about, uh, you know, Bible quizzing as a sport changed my mind. And of course, you know, some people were saying, well, it's not really a sport. And I, I actually take the opinion like, no, I, I think it's a sport. The Olympic National or sorry, International, the International Olympic Committee recognizes chess as a sport and if if chess is a sport then bible quizzing is absolutely a sport and there's certain like there's absolutely intellectual prep there's an a a very significant probably over 50% intellectual uh component to quizzing but there is absolutely a physical component. Um, and some of the stuff that we're talking about that Scott's talking about here in terms of like light balancing uh, and knowing where that edge is and controlling that and being precise about it. That, that's a very sports like sort of uh, experience. And um, with virtual quizzing, the sport of quizzing kind of goes away uh, in a sense. But um, but here's here's sort of the thing. Um, couple of, couple of things that we're gonna do anyway. So despite the fact that the, the testing was positive, we concluded that virtual quizzing is not ready for prime time in terms of having it replace regular traditional quizzing uh, in terms of scoring. But we're going to do virtual quizzing anyway. We're going to we're going to attempt to do a virtual quiz meet uh, this uh, well not this weekend but the weekend after uh, the the normal weekend of of what Dallas would have been. So that's March 27th and 28th. We're going to uh, have it be something like a fun meet, um, sort of like what we do in. PNW for the scramble meet. So we will be keeping score and we will be, you know, posting stats and all that kind of stuff, but they won't count for anything. Um, it's purely just to, um, fellowship, have fun, get some quizzing in, uh, and really the biggest thing is, it's just reward and honor the commitment and the time investment and the work that the quizzers have put in to prepare for Meet Five. We just didn't want to have that just be kind of thrown away and ignored. We wanted to honor that sort of uh that, that commitment and that time and that investment. So that's gonna happen. Uh so then subsequent to that, uh so Alan, uh who has been a guest on this show at least what Well, definitely once, but has he been on twice? Definitely twice.
1: Yeah. Definitely twice?
0: Exactly twice. (laughs) Exactly twice. Okay. I was was, was like, I thought we had him on twice. I was trying to remember. It's all getting blurred in my head. Uh, But Alan from Metro District over on the uh, East Coast uh, is uh, been has been uh, lovingly prodding me uh, around. What would it take to actually take virtual quizzing from what we experienced on Saturday and actually, I described it as we're kind of at ninety percent of quizzing, uh, but that last ten percent is so important that it makes it non-viable for you know full on legitimate quizzing and he said well what would it take to you know cross over that remaining 10% and i started thinking well what if we had a tailor-made solution that would play a, a, you know a, a, a the the audio and video and when you jumped by clicking a button or pressing the screen or something that would freeze the content and therefore there would be no bleed And therefore, you know, and and the jump would be calibrated uh, such that, you know, network lags would would take that into consideration. And we could actually have a much more precise uh, means of jumping and eliminating bleed that way. And I started thinking about, well, okay, what would it take to code that? And and I was like, well, I don't think I can code that up in two weeks. And he said, well, how long would it take? And I'm like, oh, okay, Alan, you're asking some really good, but very annoying questions. And I realized, well, maybe I could code that up in about four weeks or maybe five. And so Alan is looking around, seeing if maybe we can put together some interdistrict district meets uh, sometime after four or five weeks from now. Um, so I don't know. I'm not making any promises, but maybe that's around the corner. Uh, so we'll see how things go. All right. So anyway, sorry, we've talked for a very long time about this. We need to kind of jump into some of our other topics. So uh, Scott, what do you think about Second uh, Peter chapter 2?
1: All right. right. Second Peter chapter 2. Let's make sure I'm in the right chapter. All right. Uh, let's, well, 22 verses, which means it is like most of Hebrews and First and Second Peter, is a play day or a, not a play day. It's a happy day playground for reference quizzers and quote quizzers, because you don't have to deal with stuff in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 90s or whatever, like in Matthew. This chapter looks like it is tremendously unique, just global unique words everywhere. I think both because it's at the very end of the new material and because of how unique it is, uh, this would be a great one for all quizzers to memorize, only 22 verses there's going to be tons and tons of interrogative and multiple answer questions from this chapter. If I, I'm i not going to look at the data of what questions we have written and tell you, but I I would guess that it is there are more interrogatives per verse from this chapter than from the average chapter. There are one, two, three, four. There's only six PNW key verses. So this is not going to be something that you're going to be fighting with a lot of key verse quizzes on, even for non-key verse questions.
0: So, yeah, this could be a great one for a lot of quizzers to memorize. Yeah, fantastic. There are some really, yeah, tons of uniqueness here. And in fact, in verse one, uh, one of my favorite phrases this is sort of like, I I, I don't know, I have, a, I have a twisted brain, but like if a villain is killed off, uh, an evil villain, and they have a, like a little tombstone for the villain, they would have the villain's name. And then underneath it, the, what's it called? An epitaph? Epitaph? Something Epitaph. like that, that, yeah, would be secretly introduce destructive heresies, or this person secretly introduce destructive heresies. I love that. There's four words: secretly introduce destructive heresies. All four of them are globally unique uh, for the season. This season, and it's just a wonderful phrase. <laughs> I just, I just love that. Secretly introduce destructive heresies, and of course, you know, there's the 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 sort of nerd of me that's giggling about that. But I mean, verse one, from a theological and uh, doctrinal and pragmatic sort of reality perspective, even to this day, uh, is something that is incredibly important and and important for us to just remember it, it. it is relevant as relevant today, possibly even more relevant today than it ever has been. And it's been relevant since, you know, Peter wrote it, there are false prophets among us, uh, and there will be false teachers among us and they will secretly introduce de- destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, uh, bought them. And I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's super important. This, that, that phrase even at the end, even denying the sovereign Lord, even denying that Jesus is the son of God, right? The true living God incarnate as one of us, right? Uh, thinking of Jesus as separate than the father, uh, separate in the sense of created, right? Uh, separate in the sense of a literal son of God, right? Uh, there's, um, these, these destructive heresies have popped up. I mean, Arianism popped up in the early church. There are similar heresies that are going around even to this day and they are destructive, but they are secretly destructive. Um, and they're introduced secretly. So those, my four favorite words uh, coming out of this verse. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, just a tremendous amount of And of course, I'm only focusing on on verse one. There are 22 verses in this chapter and they are just packed solid with theological, doctrinal, practical uh, information, uh, stuff that we really need to take to heart. Because of what our podcast promises to be, I have a ridiculous hypothetical to ask you
1: that we will never actually have to settle on an answer for. But from verse 19, there is a phrase in double quotation marks, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If this were a non-epistle year, would, would you think that there's a way you could write a situation question off of that phrase in double quotes?
0: Oh, okay. My brain just fried. Okay. So they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Awesome word, unique word, beautiful word. Uh, for quote people are slaves to whatever has mastered them no, I don't no okay they promise freedom so they are the ones who are saying people are slave to whatever has mastered them and the answer and and they is these people from seventeen, right um I would believe so yes yeah you know, although these people are themselves referring to they from fifteen. I mean, it just keeps going back. These people blaspheme. It just keeps running all the way back, right? Um, it so might he,
1: be really... Let me, let me make this
0: perhaps simpler.
1: I don't think that there is a possible um, situation question you can write from this material, but let's abstract it further. Do you think that there are going to be phrases within double quotes that aren't like either spoken or they're a hypothetical quotation or something that you would not claim the quotation part of it to be the basis of a situation question?
0: Oh, I, I absolutely that happens. I mean, that happens – I mean, I think next year it happens in Matthew. So are there are there criteria for
1: a valid situation question that you adhere to that may not be explicitly written down? Like <laughs> it has to have been spoken out loud and not something implied or thought, but – Thought in a way that it is now written down in quotation marks or something of that nature.
0: Sort of. There, there is definitely some additional strictness around situation question writing that is not in the rule book that I adhere to myself. Um, but it's not about whether it's written or spoken. Um, I think if something is written. And it's clearly like, like, you know, we're quoting Isaiah, like, like one of the, one of the uh, New Testament authors is quoting Isaiah or something like that, uh, as it is written in Isaiah, blah, blah, blah. I would be kind of okay with a situation question about what Isaiah wrote and who didn't necessarily say it, but wrote it. Although there's, you can argue that, but whatever. Um, let's just say hypothetically, Isaiah wrote it, um, then, and I, sorry, I should, I should be very clear. I'm not suggesting that what Isaiah – what is in Isaiah that is then quoted by a New Testament author was not words that came from Isaiah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm suggesting that Isaiah may have said the words and not physically written them himself. So I just – sorry. I just wanted to be very clear about that. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Anyway. Um, I would be completely fine with it, probably. I would be completely fine with a situation question that does that. But similar to, you know, we can write a, an interrogative where it is technically valid, but it really, really, really seems to enforce or bring about a false teaching, or in fact, it secretly introduces a destructive heresy. (laughs) uh, I would be very much inclined to not write that interrogative, even though it's completely valid. So very similarly to the situation question, I think we should be careful not to secretly introduce destructive heresies in our situation questions.
1: Probably a good principle. Well,
0: we've got a listener question. I think that's all. I could probably
1: talk for a lot longer on situation questions, but we can skip that for probably next year. Um, we did have a nice listener question. Do you want to read it, Griffin?
0: I could, but my voice, I've been talking a whole lot about the virus. And so, of course, my voice is dry. Why don't you take this one and I'll chime in.
1: All right. So we have a listener question from Luke and Luke was, um, talking about interrogative quest, interrogative questions and says, I have a fairly interesting observation about studying for specialties, uh, in particular interrogatives that I think might surprise people. Um, he has attended internationals and both times was the primary interrogative quizzer. Both both years, he could not quote a single chapter continuously from the material, for the most part, um, but could quote large chunks here or there, but maybe not verbatim from beginning to end. Right? I am paraphrasing a little bit. So instead of to prepare for international, instead of instead of quoting the entire material or um, working to be able to quote the entire material, um, he would drill on keywords, key phrases listen to the audio of the material whenever possible, write out chapters, um, and do a lot of um, – he would write questions, wrote um, many, many interrogative questions in CBQZ, um, at, and then he could make lists and practice from those. And so was very, very familiar with interrogative questions, how they could begin, keywords, key phrases. And so if you gave a reference or maybe even started a chapter – you might not you might be able to quote that whole verse based on just the reference or that whole chapter based on just the beginning. But if you gave these little chunks from here or there, um, could probably finish every single verse um, and quote um, decent chunks and more than enough to get interrogative questions correct. Now, so in sum, he was more focused on preparing for that specific question type than being able to quote the entire material. Now, he does admit that the method doesn't apply as much for the district level since that level of preparation on a, on a single question type maybe isn't required and it might be a little bit more valuable to to have breadth versus depth. Um, and again, he acknowledged, well, not again, additionally, he acknowledges all quizzes are different. So these study methods are not for everyone, but he was interested in our thoughts on this sort of deep dive study because we do talk a lot about how useful it is to be able to quote the whole material and no references.
0: Yes. Well, okay. So first of all, I will I will stipulate a sort of a governing constr- construct. That's not really the right word. A governing super rule, a governing super philosophy. Do whatever works best for you. Uh, so if you are Luke and memorizing the way Luke memorizes and studying the way Luke uh, studies is, works out to be successful for you, uh, keep it up. I mean, certainly experiment with other ways and see if there's something that's even better. But I mean, if something's working for you and it just happens to be different than what everybody else is doing, uh, who cares? Keep, keep, keep going with it, right? Um, as long as you're still open to new, even better ways... Uh, keep doing whatever works. Uh, and so, I mean, certainly the way Luke is describing how he prepares is not a way that would work for me. Like, uh, well, parts of what he does would work for me. Right. So writing out the questions, listening to the material on audio, uh, writing down the, the verses that he memorizes, uh, all of that stuff, like, like that absolutely would work for me and does work for me, but the not memorizing everything, like, like not, memorizing a chunk of, of, con, uh, consecutive material for me makes it harder. But I mean, if it works for Luke, then by all means, like, like go for it. And certainly it has worked for him. He's attended internationals as a quizzer, uh, in, uh, 2019 and 2018 seasons. So that's fantastic. And I love uh, just as a personal bragging note, I love that he wrote 2,600 questions from scratch in CBQZ. That's totally awesome. It's just sort of a, another example of, you know, CBQZ was a tool designed for officials, but it can actually be used quite effectively uh, by quizzers for uh, quizzing prep. And so I think that's great.
1: I think in lots of situations, memorizing the entire material is not needed. I think for the vast majority of quizzers, they under estimate their ability to memorize the entire material, and how much it helps you in many different ways to know the entire material. Um, So I think that's a big reason of why we push people to do it, is we know more people can do it than they think, and how we we know how useful it is. I was always a reference question quizzer. Um, I really enjoyed that question type. And so I would just memorize the whole material, because you could probably find a decent chapter verse reference and chapter reference to write from every verse in the material. And so making a list and deciding which ones were the most likely or the best ones, and then only studying those verses, that wouldn't have been super helpful to me because I wanted to have pure confidence that I knew every single verse and that when I was jumping and if I thought I saw a specific mouth shape, I would guess that verse because I knew I knew it. And I that's the way I'd go about it. But that was just me, right? Right. In the district, making internationals is rarely a foregone conclusion for quizzers, and I think it is very useful to know the whole material because it's almost the easiest route to make internationals. Um, You kind of have to do a lot of work to be good enough at one or two question types to Give yourself a really good chance of making internationals based on just that. Even if you know the whole material and then limit yourself to a few question types, it's nice to know everything and you have a lot more flexibility. So I think you kind of have to make it first and it's good. It's easier to know the whole material. Um, And then once you know the whole material, you're more of a Swiss Army knife and you can decide at that point, hey, if I want to do multiple answers, if someone gives me a list, it will take me one-tenth of the time to get up to speed on this list than if I knew only bits and parts of the material, right? But um, when it comes to internationals, I have a kind of a, not a philosophy, I have a strong belief, and that is to consistently get questions. um, So to consistently get questions of a specific question type, we can use interrogatives as an example, I think you have to be roughly in the top five of quizzers in the entire meet at that specific question type. I would bet if you went through the averages and you kind of broke them down to what those quizzers got, like especially the quizzers in the top 10, I bet you each of them was really, really, really good, perhaps the best at a specific question type. And the middling quizzers would just pick up random questions here or there, but their scoring may not be consistent. And so to be a consistent scorer, I think you have to be roughly in the top, one of the top five best quizzers in a specific question type. And to do that, you have to do a lot of study. Because more than half the quizzers internationals are going to know the whole material. And so to be one of the best reference quizzers or finished question quizzers, you have to do tons and tons and tons of work. And I think a lot of quizzers don't know the sort of work that it takes to get to that level. And so that could be a reason – I actually have no idea offhand how Luke's done, but I would imagine that he's done pretty well. And I think it takes that sort of deep-dive focus work on a question type to do well – and the, the times that I've coached internationals, I've tried to help quizzers focus as much as possible. Oftentimes, quizzers already came to me knowing the whole material amazingly, but I would want to push and push and push them on specific question types to really own them and say, can you be one of the top five quizzers at the meet? Because otherwise, being able to quote the whole material doesn't really matter if you're getting beat by a quarter syllable by those quizzers who are experts in that type. Um, and that's definitely happened um, over the years, where I had quizzers that could quote circles around everybody else there. But when it came to a specific question type, they were not in the top five and would get beat on jumps by uh, quizzers that had prepared better on that specific question type. So I think it's kind of you have to know both what kind of studier you are, as Griffin said, but also what what kind of game are you playing. In the district, I would always be way more comfortable and confident if I did know the whole material. But when it came to internationals, I think it makes sense to focus on – Whatever, however narrow you need to focus to get to that level of expertise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Well, let's move on to our last topic here. Uh, by the way, before we move on, Luke, thank you very much for writing in. We very much appreciate your your comments and your uh, question and your feedback into the show. So thank you. And uh, everybody else, take Luke's uh, example to heart. And please write us, email us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but with that being said, let us move on to the great timer Synod of 2020. Uh, thus now in session, here Harry judges Scott and Griffin shall now hear the case of what should happen and what is ideally to happen if a quizmaster does not start the timer on time. So Scott, what are your thoughts about this deep and very important question? So I've used
1: a lot of different ways uh, as a quiz master of managing jumping um, software on a computer or boxes, some with the, the beep on when a quizzer jumps and some with the beep off and or CBQZ. I've used CBQZ where to start the 32nd timer, I have to select a quizzer. So the quizzer that won the jump and by and large they're all very close to the same in efficacy, but I really like the control of being able to start the timer when I do verbally recognize the quizzer by name and I am pretty good at names and faces. And so very quickly after a light is triggered and I can visually identify the quizzer, I'm able to call them by name and I like to make that as quick as possible because um, when you're, when you've jumped and are up at the mic or going to be up at the mic, you are, it's crazy what you can forget in a short amount of time. Um, So, I like to have control over the timer so that when I call a quizer by name, I'll start the timer. If it takes me an extra beat to call them my name, I haven't started the timer yet so that they get their full 30 seconds and it's consistent. Now, one thing I've found is I do not remember to start the timer 100% of the time. And so the times that I forget to start the timer, instead of saying like, hey, I forgot, we need to start over and redo the question or something of that nature, I kind of mentally estimate and say like, oh, it's been like five seconds. And so then I'll start the timer and... Um, I'll do some quick math, right? So if I say, oh, it's been about five seconds, but my memory is not precise. I obviously just forgot to start the timer. So I'm going to wait, not wait until this 30 second timer counts down to five seconds left to call time. I'm going to maybe let it go down to three or two, um, something where I give them an extra second or two buffer added to whatever my mental estimate is. And I decide on this time as soon as possible so that I'm not swayed if they're like, oh, they're down at second two and they're about to get it. I know that I have to say like time right when it hits whatever number I've decided on 20, 25 seconds ago. Um, Should I go further into our discussion, Griffin, or shall I? No, no, keep going. You're doing great. So in talking to Griffin, he was like, hey, so do you think it's fair Even though this this happens very randomly and you're not changing behavior based on who the quizzer is, do you think it's fair that a few times a meet, a quizzer will likely have between one and five seconds beyond 30 seconds that other quizzers do not have in the times where you have correctly started the timer right when you called their name? And in that second, I was like, you know what? This is exactly the kind of thing that Scott should be very uncomfortable with, and yet I am very comfortable just roughly estimating the time and estimating high so that I don't shortchange anyone, but it never really struck me as this should be something I should like avoid, either through clicking on their name in CBQZ right when I call them verbally, which then starts the 30 seconds, um, automatically when I click on their name and just kind of lining up an action like that to kind of force it, or by throwing out the question um, whenever I realize that I have not started the timer on time. Did I leave that hanging? I, I kind of, I had conflict because the way I think I should think is not the way that I have been thinking as I've been quiz mastering. Do you want to
0: let us know your thoughts, Griffin? Um, I am, I am in in agreement with the conflicted version of Scott. So basically I see it as the, there, there isn't a way for me to be consistently fair, even if I wanted to if I don't have the objective nature of the start of of the quiz timer, right? So um, as a pilot, uh, you know, as an, a, a private pilot uh, and an aviation enthusiast in general, I really love studying airplane disasters and airplane crashes because, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm sick and twisted. But also I, I think it's really important to be able to learn from others' mistakes so that I don't have to learn by making those same mistakes i can learn by making my own mistakes i guess so uh one famous example of one of the airline accidents that happened in the way back times uh occurred on december 28th of 1978 and it regarded united united airlines flight 173 so this was a flight that was uh leaving from uh new york uh somewhere like jfk or something like that and it was heading to portland and what ended up happening was, the plane, of course, takes off with plenty of fuel, and uh, you know, we, and you have a, 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 the FAA has a whole bunch of regu- rules and regulations about ensuring you have extra fuel and blah 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 blah. Anyway, they were all in compliance of all of that stuff. And as they were coming in for landing, they were getting set up set for set up for landing in Portland. They dropped the gear, and it turned out that you know when you drop your gear on one of these planes, uh, this was like a uh, seven. Twenty-seven or something? Er, no, DC eight. I forget exactly. Anyway, it was some plane with with engines and gear. Um, anyway, so they they're they're on final approach and they drop their gear. And uh, in planes like that, you have these gear indication lights. And and I have it in in both of my planes have gear uh, indication lights. And you'll see, uh, you know, your your gear will will cut, the, the, these little lights will turn on, right? And uh one of the three lights, and I don't know if it was the nose gear or one of the one of the mains, but one of the three lights didn't turn on, and so they were like, "Okay, this is not healthy." So they did the right thing. They raised the gear back up, they called the tower and asked for a go around, and they were gonna try to troubleshoot the the problem and in doing so they uh they 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 got vectored out a ways uh towards the south of the the south uh east of the city, I guess. And they started trying to figure out, well, what's wrong? Is the hydro- are the hydraulics not working? Is, is there a problem with the gear assembly? And they went through all these little checklists and so forth. And ultimately what happened was they crashed. And they crashed because they ran out of fuel. Uh, and the reason they ran out of fuel, now and they, they, I forget exactly how much they had, but they, they would have had like easily a half hour's worth of fuel or maybe more uh, of, of reserve remaining. Uh, probably longer than that but the reason they ran out of fuel was because they weren't focused on it they the they were thinking well i've got you know 40 minutes of extra fuel 40 minutes is a ton of time it's going to go uh, we we're going to solve this really quickly but what ends up happening is in the moment that you're, you're, you're cognitively in, you know, flight 173, you're on the flight deck and you're trying to solve the problem. Your brain operates at a different speed than reality, right? Like it, it, that's not exactly the right way to say it, but your, 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 your awareness of time changes. It's, it's subjective. It's no longer, uh, no longer objective and it's way off base. It's, it's almost always off base. Right. And so that's what happened to the crew, and they ended up uh, crashing. Now, now, what was actually wrong with, with Flight 173 was the, the little light on the dashboard for the gear had just burned out, right? Um, the gear was actually working just fine. It was just the indicator light didn't turn on. Um, and so it's sort of this double tragedy. Uh, around what happened, but it's a it's a normal sort of human condition when we do this, right? And so, like in in uh, technologists, right? So so Scott is a is a software engineer. I'm a software engineer. Uh, there's this thing in software engineering where if something goes wrong in production, right? You have code like like you have a web system that goes wrong, right? There's this sort of weird desire of software engineers to be like, oh, I can fix this. Let's go in and try and triage the problem and fix it. And they'll think that they can fix it in like two, three, four minutes. And it actually takes 45 minutes. But in the moment of the emergency of the triage, the engineers don't realize like this is taking like half an hour, 45 minutes to actually uh, triage this problem because their brain is operating at a different speed than time, right? It's, it's, they're, they're actually thinking faster than time. It's, it's weird, right? Um, similarly, I suspect, but I have no scientific evidence at all, except for a scientific study I just made up in my head right now, that I believe when quizmasters are answering or, or 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 listening to answers, that their brains are operating disconnected from time. Now, I, does that mean that they they think time is progressing more slowly than it is? Does it mean that time is actually progressing faster? Uh, I, I don't really know the answer. But I'm 80 plus percent confident that quizmasters don't have an objective sense of, of the time. And so if I don't start the timer on time, like like objectively know that I start the timer on time, and I then say, oh, I think five seconds went by. Well, was that actually five seconds? Was it two seconds? Was it one second? Was it 10 seconds? Like, I can't really know, right? And so for me, I get to the end of this, and and I'm like, well do i do i think it's five and then i add five on there and therefore at you know uh 25 seconds on my timer i call them out of time i mean i just it starts to run into some weird ambiguities very quickly and it just makes me feel super uncomfortable so uh but then the question is despite the fact that conflicted scott and current griffin agree on that point we actually had different outcomes of resolution. So, Scott, why don't you, why don't you start with your desired resolution?
1: So once I re- like started dealing with my internal conflict, um, I didn't like that. I mean, in the best case scenario, a few quizzers per meet got probably one to three seconds on average extra. And I don't like that because it's unfair to everybody else, right, who gets exactly 30. That's, in, on the, that's probably the best case. The worst case is that I'm just really bad at estimating and quizzes are getting from between like negative three seconds extra to 12 seconds extra or something, you know, like a much wider range. And I would not like that at all. But to me, the only solution at that point then um, is once you realize you have not started the timer, um, redo the question. So immediately throw it out at that point um, because you can't estimate and... Um, waiting longer doesn 't do you any good, um, and i didn 't like just redoing a question for what feels like a small error, um, but it 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 falls in line with how I think quizmasters quiz should be redoing questions, which is if you have grounds to redo a question, you should be making the choice to redo it um, right when those grounds happen, and not later, like when the thirty seconds have elapsed or um, anything. Um, so throwing out the question exactly when you realize you have not started the timer yet would fall in line with all the other time, all the other cases that I would throw out a question.
0: Yeah. Well, so there is current Griffin and then there is future Griffin. And I suspect future Griffin agrees with Scott's, um, shall we say, black and white interpretation of how to deal with this um, or dogmatic. I don't know. That's not the right word, but, but Scott's very clear cut, like, Here it is. Here's what we're going to do. I think future Griffin will agree with him. Oddly enough, current Griffin sort of doesn't kind of, which I know sounds really weird, but I'll explain. I, so, okay. Yes, I completely agree. Well, I think future Griffin will will agree, but here's sort of the practicalities of this. When does this actually happen? How frequently does, does this sort of scenario happen where the, you don't start the timer on time? it happens really rarely. I mean, it's, it's a couple of maybe once or twice a quiz meet, right? If that, right. It's just, it's not a very common uh, occurrence. And in those rare cases where it's not a common occurrence, most of the time, because probabilities being what they are, we're talking about an interrogative question. And Being the nature of interrogative questions, very, very likely the question will get answered correctly or incorrectly, obviously, like really obviously before 30 seconds are done. Right. So in that case, uh, if the question is able to be answered, let's say and, and, and this is sort of where. This is where Griffin is currently at, but I don't know that Griffin is going to stay there because I think Scott makes a very compelling argument. But current Griffin says, well, if I miss the timer and I think maybe it's two or three seconds in, but then at second number six or seven, the quizzer clearly obviously has answered the interrogative correct." I'm just going to count them correct and very quickly move on to the next question and then chastise myself mentally for not getting the timer started on time. Right. Um, because to me, like, if it's that obvious that the question was answered correctly or the opposite being true as well, right? So like if the quizzer clearly obviously said something that is wrong or clearly obviously is out of context within like the first six seconds of the answer, then I'm just going to count him incorrect, even though I didn't start the timer on time, right? Um, Because it's one of those things where I know absolutely, obviously the timer was a non-factor, And most of the time the quizzer is going to answer it correctly. So I don't want to then yank that correct answer away from the quizzer because I screwed up in something that I know didn't actually have any impact uh, in their, you know, answering correctly within a 30 second time frame. This becomes somewhat ambiguous when you get closer to the 30 seconds, right? So if a quizzer takes 20 seconds to answer, then it's like, well... Is it super obvious that they got it done within 30 seconds? I mean, maybe, but then I'm starting to run into United Airlines Flight 173 territory again, right? Like how trustworthy is my brain that I only stalled for three seconds on the timer, right? Um, You know, it starts to become much more muddy. So for me in current Griffinland. If it's super obvious to me, and I and again, what does super obvious mean? I, I don't know. That's kind of vague, too. But I mean, it would just have to be really, 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 really obvious that there's a correct or incorrect answer well within the 30-second time frame, I would probably proceed. But then in those even more rare situations, which I don't even think it's ever happened, um, but... In those very, very rare situations where the timer didn't start and they took 23 seconds to answer, then I'm kind of like, well, gosh, now I'm in a horrible situation where we've spent 23 something seconds in an answer that let's say they get correct. And now I have to basically say I'm throwing it out because I didn't start the timer on time after giving them the opportunity to answer the question. And that just is a horrible, horrible thing to be in because i mean then i don't know it starts to give off the appearance of favoritism in a way uh i mean it certainly wouldn't be but maybe it is i mean that's that's just that's crazy so i don't know um (laughs) scott does that make sense from your perspective it does and that's why i like
1: um you should be throwing out a question if you think you have made an error that warrants it and not um because of the impact that it had which i am almost immediately going to go and contradict but Maybe that's just what we do. Um yeah, because I don't I don't trust myself to be a hundred percent unbiased in every situation, right? Like we want a rookie to get a question. We want someone who has quoted every word but one right of a finish these two verses to have an extra second to finish that like um point zero zero one percent of the like material that they need, right? Like we just want these things. Um but we cannot be let ourselves be clouded by them. Um, because that's unfair. And so I think that really applies here. I'm remembering a situation that happened in District Chance last year, and I, I don't remember the, all the exact specifics, but in essence, a Quizmaster made some sort of error, so we'll just assume that they did make an error, and probably should have thrown the question out when they made that error. But, as, but they didn't. And as time continued, two things became, like, crystal crystally clear. One, that the Quizmaster error had no impact on the quizzer, and that, two, the quizzer was never going to get this question right. Um, And those two realities significantly clouded the subsequent challenge and uh, protest, right? Um, Because it was now information that we knew. Whereas if this question had just been thrown out and redone at, like, second seven of the quizzer's 30 seconds or whenever the quizmaster error occurred, then no one thinks... By spot, right? Because we don't know what would have transpired in those 23 seconds, but because we did know, we now are wanting to use like our observation that the quizzer wasn't going to get this right even if you hadn't made the error, which really shouldn't be information that that you should use in any challenge or protest. Would you agree with that, Griffin?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. So it made the whole situation kind of really
1: cloudy and contentious. And at the end of the day, I had to look at the quizmaster and just say, like, do you think you made this error? And if they thought that they did, then I said, then you, th- then you read this question. Like you have to ignore what you know happened. <laughs> you have to just say like, do I think i made this error? Um, I think it was maybe misspeaking or something of that nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it reminds me of another thing that happened to district champs that I actually think contradicts this. Um, and I want your thoughts. The quizmaster was reading a bonus question, and in PNW we do a seat bonuses. And I think it was a situation question. And as while reading the situation question, they either reversed two words, or uh, might have even like instead sort of replaced a the with a that, or something like really small like that. Um, that said quote is complete, and then the quizzer answered and got it right. And an opposing quizzer challenged, saying like you misread part of the question and it should be redone. And the quiz master actually overruled the challenge saying, while I did misread this word, um, we had said a question is complete. So that was not the basis for them being counted correct at all. Additionally, if a quizzer had not jumped on the full quotation and answered exactly as we read it, um, that would have also been good enough to count them correct. And so we are going to like, just move on with the correct. And I, don't know what you think, Griffin, because it technically was a misreading. Like you could call it an invalid question because that quotation does not exist verbatim, right?
0: Yeah, that is a very interesting, that is a very interesting scenario. I am not sure where I come down on that. I think, okay, so I reserve the right for future Griffin to change his mind. But I think where current Griffin is at is I would throw it out because even though it is non-essential to the answer, even though if the quizzer said exactly what the quiz master said, well, okay, no. Okay. So essentially it's a bonus question. And if the question was not complete and we required the question from the quizzer and they said it exactly the way the quiz master had recited it, they would have been counted correct for sure. Right?
1: Yes. There was no debate on that part of it. It was not a unique word or anything material, right? right? But I don't know if we should be making the call on it be, like what, based on its materiality, right? Sure. Because we're really deciding if it's an invalid question, not if it was like incorrect or correct or something like that.
0: Sure. So here's the thing. I mean, if this was... If this was not a bonus question, then it would be easy, right? If it was a non-bonus question and this happened, then we would absolutely accept the challenge uh, and throw out the question because we have a situation where you could make the argument that the misspeakingness of the quiz master, the inverting of a couple words or whatever, right, Mm -hmm. uh, was enough that it threw off another team unfairly right? Like it, w- it was not procedurally done correct. In a bonus situation, we're saying, well, that doesn't apply at all. But that being said, I think we, I, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm still going to hold on to my future Griffin card here, but I think we sort of have to throw it out because whether it's a bonus question or a not bonus question, the same throwing out the question rules apply.
1: You, you would think so, right? And so my when I this so while I was quiz mastering a lot of quizzes, I was actually not this one, and it was two of our less experienced quiz masters, but still very good and when they relayed this to me, I can't remember if they talked to me before it was complete or um my initial thought was well you you misread it, you have to redo it, but as they explained it, I was like, I kind of agree with all of your reasoning and i i like the critical thinking that you applied to this question um but it does feel weird that oh it's an assigned seat bonus this is fine this is not an assigned seat bonus it's not fine you know that that feels like a weird um dividing line
0: well and i can't i i don't know that there's anything in the rule book that would let us do that i mean that's kind of the thing like uh, i i don't want to invent rules i mean we do kind of invent rules all the time but I don't know, like, I, it's hard for me to imagine how that, that, that could be okay. Yeah. I guess you would just have to
1: see, is there something in the rule book that says it's invalid if, well, I mean, technically it invalid. That quotation doesn't exist.
0: Right. Right. Well, I mean, and here's the thing, if, if, if it was a toss up, would we throw out the question? Absolutely. We wouldn't have a second thought about it. We would absolutely toss it out and be like, yeah, we're redoing the question. Um, so what makes that different in a bonus question? I mean, we're basically saying there is, n- it just doesn't matter. So yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm, I, I'm i really on the fence. I really see both sides of this.
1: This is something where we want people like Alan or uh, Alex from Central to like, what do you think? Because <laughs> they, yes, yes, they've gone through the whole gamut so. of quizzing and probably would have a really good, um, well-formed thought about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah that and that is a great way to end our episode uh if you are if you have a different opinion or have any kind of opinion of, uh, surrounding the great timer synod of 2020, or anything else that we have discussed on this show, please email us at iq at uh, We would very much like to hear from our listeners. We especially love hearing from listeners who are not in the PNW district, but of course we also love hearing from our PNW family. So please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter uh, account is at InsideQuizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night.